0: You're a marketer, not a lawyer.
1: But your organization may count on you to identify problematic advertising practices.
0: Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Shaheen Rothermel.
1: And I'm Lane Gordon. We're partners in Venable's advertising and marketing law group.
0: Together, we're asking our Venable colleagues questions that are designed to help you navigate the increasingly complex world of ad law.
1: Each week, we'll dive into a new issue, from negative option marketing to copyright protection to influencer endorsements.
0: Our goal is to give you something to take away from each episode that will help fill your advertising law toolkit.
1: Thank you for listening to the Venable Ad Law Toolkit Show. Hi, I'm Len Gordon, a partner of Venable and chair of the firm's advertising and marketing group. It doesn't happen frequently, but every so often, a consumer product can be revealed to be unsafe. When that happens, a lot of questions arise. Today, we're talking to my colleagues, Melissa Steinman, a partner in Venables Advertising Group, and Aaron Moss, a partner in the firm's litigation group. And they're here to talk about product safety and recalls. Melissa and Aaron, welcome. Aaron, what's the typical manner in which a product defect comes to the attention of a manufacturer?
2: Well, there's actually a number of ways in which a product defect could come to the attention of a manufacturer. Certainly, a primary way would be a consumer complaint, but other ways include warranty claims, information that comes from retailers or dealers involved in the distribution and sale of the product. It may come from internal sources. There may be production issues that suggests that there could be a product defect concern or product testing, a lawsuit, if a lawsuit is filed alleging a defect. But there also could be information that comes from the government here, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, where the CPSC has been notified by someone, it could be a consumer, it could be someone else, that a product may contain a product defect. So there's a number of different ways in which product defects could come to the attention of a manufacturer.
1: What's the obligation of a manufacturer? Are they required to sort of run down every consumer complaint or every warranty claim and run each of those to ground, or is there a, a different standard?
2: Liability for product defects arises in two different ways, sort of civil liability concerns, your traditional product liability concerns, as well as on the regulatory side. And there are significant regulations that are applicable to manufacturers, but also to importers of consumer products, distributors of consumer products, and retailers of those products that would impose a duty on those entities to assess whether a particular complaint or concern or piece of information received presents a product defect that is of such significance that a reporting obligation to the Consumer Product Safety Commission has been triggered. That is one area that a company needs to be concerned with, managing their regulatory obligations. But of course, there is the common law duty that all manufacturers and sellers of products have uh, to ensure that the products that they have sold and placed on the market are safe.
1: How does a company go about setting up a system to deal with this? Does it depend on the type of the product? Certainly some products are more inherently risky than others, but do you counsel clients to have a system in place to manage this flow of information and triage it appropriately?
2: It is certainly to a company's benefit to develop a compliance program that addresses product safety issues. That's really aimed at ensuring that companies are assessing whatever information, however it is received, that they may need to assess to determine if one of their products contains a a safety issue or product defect. The Consumer Product Safety Commission expects companies to develop compliance programs. They expect companies to designate responsibility for managing product safety issues and for assessing their regulatory obligations in terms of reporting potential product safety issues to the Consumer Product Safety Commission. What they look like can depend on a whole variety of factors. You suggested the type of product. Certainly, that is one factor that would weigh in terms of how you craft such a program. In short, the goal of those types of programs is to ensure that the right people get the right information that allows them to assess whether they have a reporting obligation and whether they need to do something take some sort of action with respect to a product that's been placed on the market
1: what happens if a company doesn't do this That it gets complaints it gets information that with the benefit of hindsight or at least the government's view that the cpsc should have been notified and steps should have been taken what are the consequences if a company doesn't do that. I expect that there are both common law repercussions and then also federal regulatory repercussions.
2: Yes, in fact, there are both of those things. Obviously, from a common law perspective, if you have placed products into the market that could cause injury, you face civil liability. In most states, that liability is imposed strictly on any party from the manufacturer through to the ultimate seller of that product. It places strict liability on each of those entities for placing a defective product into the market and causing that injury. But there's also the regulatory risks of not timely reporting to the CPSC and not taking timely action to address a potential product safety issue. Those penalties are often civil penalties, civil monetary penalties can be quite significant in the many millions of dollars there is also injunctive relief that could be imposed by the CPSC. Mandatory recalls in that instance could be pursued. There could be a prohibition of the ability for a company to sell the product and to either import the product if you're an importer or sell the product in the United States. So there's a variety of risks that are attendant to not taking right steps in assessing whether a product you've placed on the market has a safety issue. There's also the ability to seek criminal penalties available to the CPSC in the right circumstances. At the end of the day, most companies want to ensure that their products are safe and that they're taking appropriate action, which is why the compliance program that we were just talking about is so important. It really ensures that a company is placing significant emphasis on analyzing whether its products are safe, and it's reducing liability both civilly and on the regulatory side.
1: What triggers the reporting obligation, and is there a specific time period within which the company must reach out to the CPSC?
2: It's, I think, important to talk about one issue first, which is who has the obligation to assess whether there is a need to report and when they need to report. And it should be clear that the Consumer Product Safety Act exercises or it applies a coextensive duty to report to manufacturers, importers, distributors, and retailers. Now, retailers and distributors can satisfy a reporting obligation either by reporting directly to the CPSC or by notifying an importer or manufacturer and effectively imposing on the importer or the manufacturer the duty to assess whether there is a notification obligation to the CPSC. But as a threshold matter, all of those parties are obligated to ensure that they are notifying the CPSC if there is, in fact, a reporting obligation that has been triggered. There's a variety of reporting triggers. The first is whether a product fails to comply with an applicable consumer product safety rule or with a voluntary consumer product safety standard that the CPSC has relied on, essentially has imposed as a mandatory standard. There's also a reporting obligation if a product contains a defect that presents a substantial product hazard. Defect is a defined term. Substantial product hazard is a defined term. But this is the reporting trigger that companies are assessing most often. And there's also a reporting trigger if a product creates an unreasonable risk of serious injury or death. On any of those instances, there is a reporting trigger, and that means a company needs to take the next step. You asked about timing. It's quick timing. The federal act or the standards that the CPSC has imposed requires companies to report within 24 hours of receiving information that reasonably suggests that there is a reporting obligation. It is often a complex question as to whether a product presents a defect and is of such a nature that it requires reporting. The CPSC has recognized that companies can engage in a reasonable investigation to determine if that reporting requirement has been triggered. The CPSC suggests that 10 business days is a reasonable amount of time to conduct that investigation, but they do recognize also that there may be circumstances in which a longer period of time is both justified and reasonable. In short, companies need to act quickly, efficiently, and appropriately to investigate information that has come to them, no matter how it's come. It needs to act quickly in terms of assessing whether there is a reporting obligation and whether they need to start engaging with the CPSC with respect to a particular product.
1: We are going to flip it over to Melissa now. So Aaron's talked to us about circumstances that would present a need to notify the agency, what form does that notification take, and then what happens?
0: Typically, there's a formal statutory reporting function. It's electronic. The CPSC's website, cpsc.gov, has a, a format to make a what's called a Section 15B report, which is Section 15B of the Consumer Product Safety Act. It's very simple to do because the CPSC wants to encourage that quick report, even if you don't have all of the information. So this preliminary report that you're encouraged to make requires very little information, basically who you are, what reason you believe there may be a requirement to report, and then you later fill in the details. The CPSC's position is that even if you don't have all the information, even if you're not sure that you may be required to report under the statute, come in, file that quick electronic report, and then we can work together to make that formal determination later. Of course, the typical company making the report is much more hesitant to do it. And can do some investigation before, but subject to some of the factors that Erin just talked about and the 24 hours plus sort of a reasonable period of time to investigate. Once that's run out, you're expected to at least fill out the form with the very preliminary information and make that report on the website.
1: And then once that report's been filed, is the relationship with the CPSC a a cooperative one or an adversarial one? What is the interaction between the company and the agency?
0: It's generally a cooperative one. If you come in and you provide the requested information, then it's cooperative. The only situation where you may find it becoming more adversarial is, in fact, if you have significantly delayed reporting and there's a potential failure to report situation. Over the years, and particularly lately, the CPSC has, in fact, been bringing cases against companies that it believes are either failing to report, significantly delaying their reports, or failing to execute recalls in a successful way.
1: What are the paths for further action? First, Melissa, what are the exit ramps? How do these things end? (laughs)
0: There's two tracks you can take first, and it's really important to understand those because it can affect your future liability in other fora. The first one is that you can file on the fast track for recalls. You literally request the fast track. You have a limited amount of time to execute the recall, create the documents that are associated with that, like a press release and pull everything back from your various distribution network, that sort of thing. But you essentially control most of the recall subject to approval by the CPSC. You recommend what you think the mode of recall should be. Is it going to be... Product replacement, or is it going to be a change in the instructions? You know, there's a wide range of potential remedies. And as long as you stay within that abbreviated time period, you really control a lot more. Plus, most important, you avoid the determination that there was, in fact, a product defect. And that can make a big difference when it comes to future potential liability in, say, product liability actions. The second is the more traditional sort of long-form, if you will, reporting process where you have more time and you essentially provide all the information that is requested by the CPSC. They do their own testing, examination, you provide samples of the product at issue, and then they make their own determination of whether there is, in fact, a product defect, or whether it meets the requirements under one of the various prongs of the statute that Erin discussed. And they may or may not make that determination. So if you're not sure, you think there may not be a violation of the statute, but you certainly don't want to get in trouble with the commission for making the wrong call, then you can submit under that process and then pursue it with the hopes that the CPSC will make a determination that, in fact, there is no violation.
1: Aaron, how do you go about deciding what you're going to recommend to a client between the fast track and the more traditional path?
2: Well, Melissa alluded to it, and I think it's a really important consideration, which is that the traditional route, the non-fast track recall route, imposes an obligation on the CPSC to conduct the investigation that Melissa described and then make a determination about whether a product is defective, first and foremost, whether it presents a substantial product hazard or an unreasonable risk of serious injury or death. And that is a finding that certainly can be utilized in court cases and product liability cases, class action, Cases And is a determination that would be very difficult for companies to deal with within the context of litigation. As the CPSC itself suggests, companies should be reporting to the CPSC if there's any potential that there is a product safety issue that triggers one of the reporting requirements. Once a company does that, it does not necessarily mean that any remedy is necessary, but you're putting that decision, if you do not do the fast track process, you're putting that decision in the hands of the CPSC. And so that is a risk that companies really need to consider in light of the product portfolio, in light of the particular issue that has been raised. There certainly are circumstances where companies say, this is not an issue, right? This is not a defect that presents any sort of hazard, but we feel obligated to notify the CPSC, we'll let them go through their process. I do think for companies, the fast track recall process is a much more advantageous process because it really puts the control of the process in the company's hands. At that point, you are saying to the CPSC, out of an abundance of caution, we're going to take this product off the market or we're going to replace the product with another product or we're going to replace the instructions with new instructions. We're going to do that quickly, efficiently, and in that instance, the CPSC's only determination is whether the corrective action plan that you are putting forward is appropriate.
1: So how soon into the process do you have to decide which of these two routes you want to go, and can you move from one to the other?
2: There is the ability to report preliminarily, as Melissa described, and then choose to proceed down the fast-track process after an initial report. It becomes a little more challenging to do that if you haven't done the prerequisites for even availing yourself of the fast-track process. And the primary prerequisite is that you've stopped production, and sale of the product. If you haven't done that, then you cannot proceed with a fast-track recall. And for companies that sell products in a variety of different ways, whether it's brick and mortar or through e-commerce, that is a very big undertaking to stop not just production of the product, which may be a little bit easier to do. You'd have to stop distribution of that product too. And that would require notice to all the parties responsible for putting product into the market. And that is a much more public step and should be taken sooner rather than later if you're going to pursue the fast track process.
0: If you choose the fast track and then you cannot make the sort of abbreviated timeline in terms of preparing the corrective action plan and issuing the press release that the commission will require in all but very limited circumstances, you will then be converted over to the the slow boat, if you will. So another sort of factor in there.
1: So we've been talking about recalls in the context of stopping manufacture, stopping distribution, probably recapturing inventory that's in the system. For either the fast track or a more traditional, uh, the slow boat, as Melissa called it, are there remedies short of that that are acceptable but if, if you go the fast track it's all or nothing.
0: I think one thing to understand with when you say the word recall you don't necessarily mean that ultimately all products have to be pulled from the market. The recall essentially is the announcement that there is an issue with this product. You know, we will report then there will be a recall and the remedy for that recall will be X. So the usage of the term recall in sort of legal lore is really the announcement that from a legal perspective, there is an issue with the product and there will be some change in how the product is either manufactured, there will be you know, a change in the instructions. There's all sort of manner of changes that could be made to ensure that the product on the market is safer, depending on what the actual issue with the product was.
1: And those type of more flexible solutions are achievable through the fast track?
0: They are. They are.
1: So we've talked about the fast track, which avoids a finding of liability. And we've talked about getting word out to try and avoid failure to warn claims. Are there other things upon discovery of a potential defect that the company can do to mitigate its common law or civil liability exposure? I guess I'll flip that one to Erin in the first instance.
2: I'll start by uh, going back to the issue of ensuring that there's a compliance program or some sort of protocol that's in place that allows companies to be consistently assessing whether there are product safety issues that they need to react to. And an important part of that type of program is not just to look at individual claims, but to also look more broadly for trends. Warranty data in particular is a source where you may have a series of warranty claims that individually doesn't suggest anything other than a potential quality issue. But when you look more broadly at a pattern of those warranty claims, for example, it might reveal something of greater concern. From a liability reduction standpoint, that kind of monitoring and constant interaction with all of the information about your products that you're receiving, I think, is a really important step. But you know, if you are facing a product defect issue, you've identified the defect, you are taking steps to re- either remove product from the market or taking one of the remedial steps that Melissa mentioned in her comments, other risk-reducing efforts that you can take are to notify insurance so that insurance can essentially be activated and assist you in responding to those claims and taking into account larger liability issues, obviously stopping production is important and likely has already happened, but assessing your other products and whether either the design of those products or the manufacturing of those products might present similar issues, I think that's an important liability reduction step to take and notifying all relevant parties distributors retailers contract manufacturers component suppliers really assessing all of that and you know identifying what you need to tell to them based on your commercial obligations i think is also important all of that you know needs to be looked at when you're thinking holistically about responding to a product defect issue that you've identified reported to the CPSC and are now taking steps to address.
1: Thanks, Erin. Very helpful. I'm going to flip it to each of you and ask for any sort of concluding thoughts or big picture takeaways that you think our audience ought to have.
0: It's important nowadays to start to think the CPSC has started to get way beyond, like, are batteries safe or are these children's products safe and look into issues like, smart products and what is being collected in terms of data, and now they're even getting into AI. So it's important to keep an eye on the CPSC and what they're doing and what your products can do and how that may wrap back into it, because they're a very activist agency right now. When there are violations, they bring cases for very large civil money penalties sometimes, as in the millions and multi-millions of dollars, particularly when it comes to delayed reporting. So this is an agency to keep on your radar.
2: What we've been talking about are sort of at the federal level, what your obligations are, and of course our common law product liability requirements. But states are also very active in imposing statutory obligations on companies with respect to product safety. And I think it's important and really incumbent on any company that manufactures, imports, or sells a product to ensure that not only do you have a compliance program that's managing things in a sort of reactive way where you're taking account of information that comes to you after products are placed on the market, but that you're very active in managing the changing regulations that impact product safety.
1: Thanks, thanks to both of you. This was incredibly informative and I feel much, much safer now. (laughs) Thanks all, take care, (laughs) bye-bye.
2: Thank you, thank you.
1: Well, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Melissa Steinman and Aaron Moss for their insights into product safety and safety recalls. You can read more from Melissa and Aaron on this topic in our Advertising Law Toolkit. It's available at venable.com adlawtoolkit You can also stay up to date on these and other issues by following our allaboutadvertisinglaw.com blog. Please join us next week when my co-host Shaheen Rothermel talks to our venable colleague Todd Harrison. About marketing FDA regulated products. I'm Lynn Gordon. Thanks for listening to the Venable Ad Law Toolkit Show.